0: At quick glance, the first 25 years of Adolf Hitler's life appear as though they would have done little to prepare him for service during the First World War. During his first quarter century of life, he had suffered abuse at the hands of his authoritarian father. I'm no expert, but following orders from someone that yells a lot is kind of the military's thing. His mother's intense love and support had created a false sense of deservedness in the lazy youngster making him unfit for duty as just one of the squad. He had failed out of multiple schools, thus showcasing a lack of discipline. Additionally, he had failed in his goal of becoming an artist. Worse, his giving up after one setback proved that he lacked perseverance. He had no friends, skills, and seemingly no future. In retrospect, however, Adolf was perfectly suited to the moment. World War I would go on to break nearly everyone involved. Everyone, that is, except Adolf Hitler. At least that was what he would go on to claim. In the midst of worldwide tragedy, the future Fuhrer was about to experience the best years of his life. Instead of breaking, Adolf would emerge a new man, fully formed and ready to seize the mantle of leadership the result of which would be two decades of tragedy. This is episode number two in our series on the life of Adolf Hitler, his rise to power. Adolf didn't initially jump for joy at the thought of being involved in a war, He was required to sign up for the military draft as early as 1910. Three times he dodged the draft by purposefully failing to turn in his paperwork. During this period, no one but the members of the Serbian Black Hand knew of the plot that would bring down Austria's Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914. But most in Europe knew that war was on the horizon. A series of arms build up saber-rattling and a nearly universal desire to expand their empires had every nation-state itching for war. Hitler must have suspected this when in May of 1913 he hurriedly left his bed in a Vienna homeless shelter to flee across the border to Munich, Germany. In preparation for the looming conflict, Austria was actively rounding up known draft-dodgers. The southern German city of Munich is about 200 miles from his hometown of Linz. Munich was no kinder to him than Vienna had proven to be. He barely survived by living on the streets and selling architectural postcards to tourists. On January 18, 1914, the Austrian police caught up to him and arrested him. He attempted to talk his way out of his newfound legal troubles. The letter that he wrote to Austrian officials remains in the historical archive. Among claims of ignorance, the future Fuhrer pointed to his impoverished state as to why he had failed to appear for the legal summons, claiming that, quote, "...the main reason making it impossible for me to honor your summons is that it has not been possible for me to muster the sum necessary for such a journey at such a short notice." While it is true that I'm earning my keep as a painter, I do so only since I am entirely without assets. My father was a government official. Therefore, my earnings are extremely modest, just sufficient for subsistence purposes. The judge threw out the excuses, or perhaps he properly recognized them as bold lies. But he did go easy on the 24-year-old. Austria threw out the charges as long as Adolf promptly reported for service. That occurred three months later as Adolf reported for duty only to fail the physical entrance exam. It's not exactly clear what made Adolf unfit for service. For the sake of sharing a colorful example, perhaps he did something along the lines of what American musician Ted Nugent did to avoid military service in Vietnam. The Stranglehold singer reported for service, but as he told a reporter from High Times, he wasn't in pitch-perfect shape. I'll clean up Nugent's language here, but I'm thankful that I wasn't one of the ones that had to clean up the exam room after he left. Nugent prepared for the exam by stopping all normal hygiene practices for a month prior. He also took enough crystal meth to avoid sleep for three straight days. During this time, and this information is all volunteered by the man himself, he tells us that, quote, I ceased cleansing my body. No more brushing my teeth. No more washing my hair. No baths. No soap. No water. 30 days of debris built. I stopped eating any food with nutritional value. I just had chips, Pepsi, little jars of Polish sausages, and I drink the syrup. Then, a week before the exam, I stopped going to the bathroom. I did it in my pants. The whole shot. My pants got so crusted up they had to cut them off of me." End quote. Officially, Adolf was rejected due to a figure that was, quote, so gaunt that he wouldn't be able to bear a weapon. Whether this was merely because of his last decade of living in an impoverished state or because he went to greater, Nugent-like lengths to avoid war is something that we can only speculate on. We do know, however, that it wasn't because he was against the idea of war. In his later writings, he explains that the reason for his unwillingness to serve was because of the multiracial Austrian military. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire was a patchwork of states, and its army of conscripts reflected such. Slavs, Jews, Hungarians, Italians, and Romanians were all active soldiers whom Adolf had come to despise after coming to embrace the ideology of Pan-Germanism. After successfully avoiding the draft and jail time, Adolf returned to Munich, and appears to be captured in a photograph celebrating the outbreak of World War I. This, like nearly everything else regarding the life of Adolf Hitler, was probably faked. Officially, he had his people scour photos from the event in an attempt to find him. The feat was accomplished on March 12, 1932, and the Nazi party widely published the photo, which clearly showed an excited, suited-up young Adolf removing his hat and smiling in the direction of the speaker. The mustache is there but hasn't been trimmed down to its signature length at this point in history. The original photographer found the fear in it after a conversation in his studio, where Hitler mentioned the rally. Suspiciously, the photo was discovered and released one day before the presidential election, an election during which Adolf Hitler's military record and support for the war had been strongly challenged by the opposition. Recent scholarship has further thrown doubt on the authenticity of this photo. Other images taken from different angles didn't successfully place the Austrian. This includes some of the additional pictures by the same photographer. While he may or may not have been in attendance at this rally, he clearly supported Germany's declaration of war against the Allies. After asking for permission, because he wasn't German, He was admitted to a German-Bavarian fighting unit. Until recently, the historical record regarding Adolf Hitler and World War I has been reported with near-universal agreement. The 1935 book, titled The Story of Adolf Hitler, Told for Children, sums up Adolf's heroic acts as a dispatch runner throughout the war, claiming that he had run straight through machine gun fire to deliver messages between outposts on the front line. It even describes him as one of the bravest soldiers in every battle. Despite being a work of pure propaganda, there is some support for this historical approach. After all, Adolf was twice awarded the prestigious Iron Cross for bravery. The first came based upon the recommendation of his superior officer, Hugo Gutmann. The award is particularly notable because of what would come because of Adolf's rise and that Gutmann was a German-Jewish officer. Here is how the citation described his deeds. As a runner, his coolness and dash in both trench and open warfare have been exemplary and invariably he has shown himself ready to volunteer for tasks in the most difficult situation, and at great danger to himself. Whenever communications have been totally disrupted at a critical moment in a battle, it has been thanks to Hitler's unflagging and devoted efforts that important messages have continued to get through, despite every difficulty. Historians, however, have began to push back on the Hitler-as-a-heroic-soldier narrative device. British scholar Ian King is among them. He writes that after his first battle, quote, Hitler managed to wrangle himself a cushy position at regimental headquarters, several miles behind the front line. There he lived in relative safety and luxury, only occasionally venturing near the trenches, Usually, he was just delivering messages between the regiment's headquarters and its administrative bases, both well away from danger. Several times during the war, Hitler turned down opportunities for promotion to keep his precious role as a regimental dispatch runner. It was quite a feat for him to remain at the army's lowest rank, not a corporal as is sometimes reported, throughout the entirety of the war, end quote. King continues, pointing out that quote he spent a smaller portion of his war years in the trenches than almost any other private in his regiment. Hitler and his propaganda machine pretended he delivered reports between frontline positions, but he was only called into the frontline when German manpower was stretched. It meant he served at the Battle of the Somme for only four days. He suffered a light wound from wood splinters in October 1916, which meant he was in the hospital on the days his regiment faced its worst battles. He missed other crucial days of fighting by being on leave." Quote. Personally, I have never been one to volunteer to serve my country during warfare, so I'm not going to go after any soldier that finds a way to make life more bearable during his or her service. Assuming King is correct, one could hardly blame Adolf for taking an easier route through that first battle. That first taste of real combat was the Battle of Ypres in 1914. And if you look at the German name for that battle, Kindermord B. Ypres, which translates to the Massacre of the Innocents, you can quickly realize that it didn't go well. After a fast-track two months of training, Hitler's Bavarian Regiment, which consisted of approximately 3,600 men, joined the battle. Only 611 survived after the first two months at the Massacre of the Innocents. Of Hitler's smaller company within the division, 250 eager lads were reduced to a mere 42 survivors. British historian John Keegan is among those who believe that this experience caused Hitler to become aloof and withdrawn for the remaining four years of the war. While we can openly question his actions during his time at war, we can't question his own level of personal fulfillment from the service. World War I was clearly the best time thus far in Hitler's life. After a decade living in homeless shelters, the military gave order to his life, as well as regular meals. Unlike his fellow soldiers, he never complained about the bad food or the horrible conditions that come with war. He remained a loner, but his comrades found him to be a likable loner, even if he was too eager to please his superiors. The war provided Hitler with a purpose that had been lacking ever since he had dropped out of school and taken on the life as a leisure gentleman without a job or a care in the world. One of Hitler's comrades wrote that, quote, When Hitler was issued his rifle, he looked at it with delight, as a woman looks at her jewelry, which made me laugh. As terrible as World War I was, Adolf was able to find time to take out his watercolors and paint the scenery. He even adopted a dog, whom he named Little Fox. The Jack Russell Terrier had belonged to the British, but was captured and turned to the dark side by Hitler. The two were inseparable, and undoctored photographs from the war still exist of Adolf and the Beast. The pair were tragically separated in 1917 after a railroad operator offered 200 marks for the pup, to which the fear responded, you could give me 200,000 and you wouldn't get him. Later that day, however, Little Fox had been stolen. As they say, all is fair in love and war, although I will never condone mistreatment of animals, which includes separating a pet from its owner. I also won't ever feel bad for Hitler always keep in mind that Adolf Hitler was a psychopath. We'll back this statement up more in a later episode. One of the strangest things in psychologically profiling the man is the fact that he truly loved dogs and would go on to have one with him constantly throughout his adult life. Hitler himself quipped, The more I know people, the more I love dogs. John Ronson, a British journalist who wrote the book The Psychopath Test, claims that psychopaths gravitate towards dogs, since they are obedient and easy to manipulate. For his book, he interviewed qualified individuals with psychiatric disorders who wouldn't be able to shed an ounce of emotion regarding the death of a human, but would in turn get really upset when their dogs die, because dogs offered them unconditional love. Another interesting tidbit from Ronson's work is that psychopaths rarely, if ever, have cats. He suggests that is because of how willful and independent they are. Remarkably, the war did not get the best of Adolf Hitler, but it still had an effect. World War I gave birth to a lost generation throughout Europe, but particularly in Germany, one of the biggest losers from a conflict where no one truly won anything at all. All Quiet on the Western Front is a fictional work that examines this very real phenomenon that affected nearly every surviving 18-30 to 30 year old man living in Europe. Our modern day understanding of PTSD serves to inform us of a tiny bit of what these men and women were feeling after such a brutal conflict. To put World War I in perspective, the United States lost 57,000 soldiers throughout the nearly decade-long Vietnam Conflict. The PTSD wounds in our soldiers' mental health remain visible today from that conflict. In just one day, during the Battle of the Somme, the British lost 60,000 soldiers. World War I served to end an illusion and begin a new era. Pre-war, everyone believed that science, technology, and reasoned enlightenment would lead us to a utopia. Instead, it had led to an era of prolonged and meaningless destruction. To the outside world, Adolf appeared invincible to the disillusionment and the PTSD of the world around him. He never even requested or used his leave time. Even after being injured, he always rushed back to continue serving. There are signs, however, that the war got to him, just as it did everyone else. On October 14, 1918, close to the eventual end of the war, Corporate Adolf Hitler was wounded during fighting in the Ypres. Ironically, the location of his first battle during the war was also his last. In fact, He likely wondered if it would be the last place that he would ever see. A chlorine-slash-mustard-gas chemical weapon went off near Hitler, and he was forcibly evacuated to Pacewalk, a northern town near the Polish border. Mein Kampf and other Nazi propaganda pieces were eager to address this incident. First, it showed that the fear was in the midst of the fighting. Secondly. This serves to explain that Hitler was away from the front at the end of the fighting, thus leaving the door open for conspiracy theorists to imagine that the result might have been different if only their brave dispatch runner had not been dispatched from the front. As is nearly always the case with Hitler, however, the truth is far more embarrassing. Doctors found no damage from the gas. Instead, they diagnosed him with hysterical blindness. His inability to see was due to psychological trauma rather than physical. Historian Thomas Weber in his book, Hitler's First War, reports on testimony from doctors familiar with the case in 1945. The doctors claimed that the medical papers regarding the blindness were so damning to the personality cult that Adolf Hitler had built up that German Chancellor Kurt von Schleckler personally kept a copy of the records so that he possessed some blackmail material against his political opponent. Before they could be released, however, Schleckler was gunned down by the SS as part of Kristallnacht, the Knight of Long Knives. The war ended on November 11, 1918, less than one month after Adolf Hitler was wounded. He was discharged from the hospital with a clean bill of health eight days later. In his propaganda piece, Mein Kampf, Adolf explains that, quote, there followed terrible days and even worse nights. I knew that all was lost. In these nights, hatred grew in me, hatred for those responsible for the deed, end quote. Throughout Germany, there were questions about who exactly was responsible for the defeat. In reality, the answer is that no one was truly to blame. Germany lost a title fight because of exhaustion. They bore the brunt of the fighting on both fronts. They more than held their own on the western front and managed to defeat the Russians on the eastern. In fact, they managed to achieve more than anyone likely would have guessed they could have at the beginning of the war. An incredible 54.6% of German soldiers became casualties of the Great War. Despite this, the Allied forces had never crossed onto German soil. The German soldiers were worn out, their soil was exhausted, and the politicians were finished. Facing them across the other side of no man's land were the newly joined American forces, eager to join the fight. The Kiel mutiny finally forced Kaiser Wilhelm's hand and led him to abdicate the German throne, two days before the ceasefire was agreed to. The lack of any incursion into their borders combined with the cheery outlook the German propaganda had encouraged throughout the war became the cracks where the sinister stab-in-your-back theory took root. Like most conspiracy theories, this one regularly changed its target to fit the moment. The two most commonly blamed for Germany's loss were the politicians that took over for Kaiser Wilhelm and the world's Jewish Supreme Council, something that is only real in conspiracy circles. I could spend a few hours editorializing about how terrible the Treaty of Versailles was, Instead, I'll just spend a few sentences and hope that you get the point. This treaty, which ended World War I, can be directly traced as the cause of World War II. It also represented an opportunity to increase global trade connections, end the world's worst imperialistic instincts, and potentially prevent the coming Cold War. The new interim government of Germany, we'll simply refer to them as Weimar Germany for simplicity, walked into an impossible situation in Versailles, France. As part of the November armistice, they had already disarmed the German army and sent their troops home. The Allies had not similarly reciprocated. When the German delegation informed the Allies that the terms were unacceptable, they were bluntly informed that the French army was more than ready to invade their defenseless homeland. In June of 1919, the Weimar government agreed to the Treaty of Versailles, which included harsh reparation requirements and a politically indefensible war guilt clause. This clause unfairly laid the blame for the entirety of the war at the feet of the Germans. The key vote on the treaty belonged to British Prime Minister Lloyd George, who quipped that he was seated between Jesus Christ, played by the willing to forgive Woodrow Wilson, and Napoleon, represented by the never-forget-George Clemenceau. In the end, George sided with the French and agreed to punish Germany to such an extent that they would never be able to threaten Europe again. The course was set, and it seemed inevitable that some malignant force would rise in Germany as a reaction but it wasn't yet clear that that force would be Corporal Adolf Hitler. The heavy burden that is depression began to seep back into Adolf's life. He returned to Munich after a short stint as a prison guard. He had no academic qualifications nor previous employment experience outside of the military to return to. He was once again adrift without a sail. The Treaty of Versailles required that Weimar Germany massively reduce the size of their standing armed forces. Adolf was desperate to continue in the military and took anything that he could receive in order to remain employed. This included supporting a left-wing communist political revolution that occurred in Munich and running for his first political office, serving on a soldier's war board which would ensure that he could remain in the army. His flirtation with communism ended with the assassination of the socialist leader of Munich. A right-wing government replaced it, and Adolf, still desperate to remain in the military, accepted a role as an undercover informant for the information office of the military administration. The October revolution that had knocked Russia out of the war universally awoke fears of looming communist invasions across the globe. Adolf's task would be to investigate and root out any portions of the army and political groups that served as fronts for communism. For once in his life, he excelled in his classes as an informant and quickly advanced from the role of student to instructor. He was given progressively more important tasks and it is during this time that we can start to see the seeds of the Holocaust being planted by Hitler. A client requested the government's thoughts on what was becoming known throughout Germany as the Jewish question, as in what is to be done with the German Jews, who as a group were increasingly being blamed for stabbing the Germans in the back. Adolf was selected as the speaker to represent Munich's thoughts on the matter. He claimed, without any evidence, that the Jewish people living in Germany had been the driving force in Munich's left-wing communist revolt. He didn't stop there, proclaiming them, quote, the tuberculosis of the peoples, and calling for their removal from Germany. Another unpredictable event occurred on September 12, 1919. Adolf was assigned to go undercover to investigate Anton Drexler's German Workers' Party for suspected communist sympathies. Political parties were a new concept in Germany, and the unpopularity of those in charge of Weimar inspired the creation of hundreds of small opposition political parties. This particular meeting was at a beer hall, and had a mere 25 individuals in the audience. Dressed in civilian clothes, Hitler calmly listened to an economic lecture entitled How and by What Means is Capitalism to be Eliminated? Before he could get up and leave, an individual at the meeting spoke up to suggest that Bavaria should break away from Germany and join Adolf's birth home of Austria. Now keep in mind that Adolf is at this moment undercover, and I'm pretty sure that one of the first rules of being a clandestine informant is to not draw unnecessary attention to yourself. Adolf, however, became so enraged that he ranted at the man for an uninterrupted 15 minutes. Drexler and the rest of the audience witnessed this with jaws dropped wide open. Drexler reportedly whispered, He's got the gift of the gab. We could use him. Adolf was then handed a 40-page pamphlet entitled, My Political Awakening. It should seem strange that Adolf Hitler, one of the poster boys for right-wing extremism, would consider joining a left-wing Socialist Workers' Party. The decision is so odd that he explained his decision to first join and then take over Drexler's party in Mein Kampf. Supposedly, Hitler was drawn to Drexler's explanation that the party was to be a movement rather than a simple political party. Drexler was already deeply involved in identity politics, and as Adolf explained, the party was a blank canvas. He wrote, Aside from a few directives, there was nothing, no program, no leaflet, no printed material at all, no membership cards, not even a miserable rubber stamp. In this disorganized party, he saw opportunity, stating that, quote, This absurd little organization with its few members seemed to me to possess the one advantage that it had not frozen into an organization, but left the individual opportunity for real personal activity. Here it was still possible to work, and the smaller the movement, the more readily it could be put into the proper form. Here the content, the goal, and the road could still be determined. That small party took off only after publishing their meeting information at one of Munich's anti-Semitic newspapers. This ensured that the Nazis, from the very beginning, were made up of racist bigots. This well-attended meeting of 100 individuals was Adolf's first official role as a featured speaker. Some questions about him still remained. For instance, was he ready for primetime? At least one early follower had some doubts, describing him as looking like a waiter in a railway station restaurant, with heavy boots, a leather waistcoat, and an odd little mustache. Midway through the speech, it became clear that the audience was eating up every word. He detailed his feelings of the moment in Mein Kampf, writing that, I spoke for 30 minutes, and what before I had simply felt within me, without any way of knowing it was now proved by reality. I could speak. After thirty minutes, the people in the small room were electrified, and the enthusiasm was first expressed by the fact that my appeal to the self-sacrifice of those present led to the donation of three hundred marks. His mother had always filled his head that he had been destined for greatness. But until this moment, he had lived life as a loner, Whom the world had either ignored or kicked while he was down. He had finally found his place and for him there would be no turning back. The party used that 300 marks to expand its advertisement in anti-semitic newspapers. He began to personally recruit men that he had known from his days in the army. He soon settled into a routine that pushed him to be listed among the great orators of history. For someone who's a non-German speaker, it has always been hard to understand his appeal. I personally enjoy the caricature episode from The Office where Jim tricks Dwight into copying Hitler's mannerisms. Historian Frank de Cotter attempts to explain his style by writing that, quote, in his early years, Hitler had a command of voice, phrase, and effect, which has never been equaled. And on his first evening, he was at his best. He would begin in a quiet, reserved manner, but gradually build up momentum, using simple language that ordinary people could understand. As he warmed to his subject, de Cotter continues, he began attacking Jews, chastising the Kaiser, thundering against war profiters, speaking more and more rapidly with dramatic hand gestures, a finger occasionally stabbing the air. He knew how to tailor his message to his listeners, giving voice to their hatred and hope. The speeches of Adolf Hitler are well preserved. The vast majority of them hit on subjects that were designed to draw in those disillusioned with the path that the Weimar government had put them on. He blamed the problems that they faced on the Treaty of Versailles and on outsiders, such as German Jews. He often repeated one of his big lies, that they had not lost the war, but instead that it had been stolen from them, that the soldiers' sacrifices and suffering had been for nothing. The party's expansion was fueled by the successful recruitment of alienated soldiers with PTSD, along with many of the most racist individuals that Munich had to offer. This became both the party's base and the blueprint. Violence by their followers was both welcomed and encouraged. Soon the party acquired a newspaper, which began to portray Hitler as Germany's next great man. For the adoption of the party's 25-point platform, he intentionally chose the color red for the whole as he suspected it would entice the Marxists to disrupt the meeting. They did, but the newly formed Nazi party turned the communist protest into an open brawl. It was only 1920, and Hitler's anti-Semitism had clearly come to the forefront of his personality. What happened once he was in power was horrendous, but it should have come as little surprise. Nineteen years before World War II, the Nazi's platform included a rejection of the Treaty of Versailles, a demand for new territories, Lebensraum, citizenship that Jews would be unable to obtain, and a strong, dominant central government. By the end of the year, the newly minted Nazi party was 3,000 members strong. Not everyone was pleased at the new direction of the party, and after an internal mutiny against the ideas that he was pushing, Adolf tendered his resignation. Knowing that he was the main attraction for the small but growing party, Anton Drexler handed over the leadership to the future Fuhrer. Although it was an informal organization, the SA, alternatively known as the Stormtroopers or the Brownshirts, began violently breaking up the rallies of their political opponents. The shirt design was an accident, as the only available en masse uniforms that could be quickly purchased were a shipment of shirts that were intended for a German colony in East Africa that had been lost in the Treaty of Versailles. In September, Adolf was arrested and served one month in jail for inciting a riot that resulted in politician Balstraat being removed from his own speaking stage. Showing no signs of remorse, something that would go on to define the rest of his life, Adolf told the police commissioner that it's all right, we got what we wanted, he did not speak. Hermann Göring took over as leader of the SA in 1923 and proceeded to form it into a true paramilitary organization, which boasted another membership of 3,000. They operated as the muscle for Hitler's rise. Another World War I veteran, Goring would go on to oversee the creation of the German Secret Police, or Gestapo, and then would serve as the commander-in-chief of the German Air Force. As inspiring as Adolf and Goring were, the waves of individuals signing up for the Nazi Party were first and foremost due to the failings of the Weimar Republic, which had been doomed from the start. Keep in mind that a month before this government took over, Germany had a king. The country's new system of proportional representation ensured that uneven coalition governments would always be necessary. Weimar was born on a cliff's edge, and would have benefited from a stable government with a clear and consistent vision to navigate its way, rather than policy which whiplashed back and forth as different coalition alliances emerged. The required war reparations put a stranglehold on the economy, and the Treaty of Versailles further seized the most economically productive regions from Germany and gave their control to the French and the Belgians. This meant that Germany would have to dig itself out of debt with both hands tied behind its back. Even worse, few Germans actually wanted their government to succeed. The entire country blamed them for accepting the terms of the treaty. At this point, however, it wasn't clear that the Nazis would come to power. The German people were divided on where to go next. Segments even publicly advocated for a return of the exiled Kaiser. These groups sought the failure of the government to facilitate his return. Another group desiring the government's fall were German communists. They inferred that the turning of Germany red was necessary to prove Marx correct. All of these factors combined to create hyperinflation throughout the German economy. The stories that your high school teacher told you weren't hyperbole. By 1923, Germans were using marks for wallpaper, kindling, toilet paper, and more. Shopping carts were indeed necessary to carry enough cash to make a purchase at the grocery store although the state would eventually alleviate that issue by printing a single bill that represented a billion marks. In 1918, the exchange rate was $1 for 5 marks. Four years into the Weimar Republic's reign, $1 would get you 191 marks. The next year, it jumped precipitously to $1 for 18,000 marks. Before the end of the year in 1923, the exchange rate for one U.S. dollar was 4.2 trillion marks. Well past the point of insanity, the U.S. finally came to the rescue via the Dawes plan. The ridiculously unfair restrictions imposed by France and Britain were eased, in part because the Allies were now more worried about a resurgent communist Russia rather than the floundering Germany. The Dawes plan restructured the reparation payments, put the Allies in charge of the German National Bank, and authorized massive loans designed to restart the German economy. There are those who search for brilliance in the rise of Hitler. After all, he was an Austrian failed artist living on the streets, before he became the most powerful man in one of the world's most powerful countries. I tend to think the other way. It's almost shocking that he managed to come to power, and only did so after lucking his way through a series of mistakes that should have gotten him removed from history's sacred timeline. Inspired by the rise of Italy's fascist leader Mussolini, Adolf decided that traditional politics took too long to effect change. Instead he would seize power in a push, or coup d'etat. His effort became known in the pages of history as the beer Hall pusch The event occurred on November 8th and 9th in 1923, the 34th year of Hitler's life. The plan was to first take over the Bavarian region, and then lead a populist march, a la the one that Mussolini did towards Rome, to Berlin. The assumption was that the nation would rally to their cause and swell their numbers to the point that the Weimar Republic would be forced to capitulate to their demands. Although Adolf Hitler was known to most by this point, the Nazis were still a small regional political party. In order to boost the credibility of the operation, they enlisted the support of right-wing general Erich Ludendorff as a figurehead the leader of the Bavarian region, von Karl, had a pre-scheduled speech at a beer hall in Munich. Six hundred Nazis would surround the building before Adolf went and burst in, dramatically firing a shot into the ceiling. He then publicly declared a national revolution. Across the city, SA members were ordered to take over key government buildings but were universally failing in the face of stiff police resistance. Annoyed with the delays, Adolf left the beer hall to check on the progress, leaving one of his figureheads in charge. Those that remained in the beer hall were incapable of acting without their leader. Ludendorff proceeded to fall for von Karl's ruse and went on to release their most valuable prisoner. Von Karl had promised to join them, and left in order to rally forces to their cause. Instead, he rallied the police, informing them of all of the details of the plan that the Nazis had spent the night trying to convince him to accept. Like a gambler chasing bad money, Adolf continued to pursue his original plan to march towards Berlin on November 9th, proclaiming that either the German revolution begins tonight, or we will all be dead by dawn. The most significant problem he faced at this moment was indeed a significant one, for few were following him. The local government had not legitimized the coup, and the police were there waiting for him. That police force was a mere 130, against approximately 2,000 men at least sympathetic to Hitler's cause. Shots rang out and four state police officers were killed, along with 16 Nazis. Adolf went on to suffer a dislocated shoulder after the man next to him fell dead and proceeded to pull him down with him. Adolf Hitler, a coward, abandoned his followers and ran for it. For two days he hid in a friend's attic. During this time, he reportedly contemplated suicide. Far from the intended revolutionary event, the Beer Hall push was minor news. Proving that inflation wasn't quite under control in Weimar, the Nazi party was handed a 11 trillion mark bill for the damage to the Beer Hall. No one said that national revolutions come without costs. Hitler was arrested and put on trial for high treason against the state, along with nine of his closest supporters the trial was immediately turned into a farce by the primary defendant. The judge in the case was surprisingly deferential to Hitler. According to Professor Douglas Linter, who specializes in studying trial law, the judge allowed the defendant to give long speeches, question witnesses, and he often interrupted testimony with outbursts. He attempted to distract the jury from his own crimes by acting as if it was the Weimar government on trial instead. At one point, he told the court that if today I stand here as a revolutionary, it is as a revolutionary against the revolution. There is no such thing as high treason against the traitors of 1918. The trial's testimonial phase lasted for 24 days, and Hitler's popularity among the people of Germany increased exponentially each and every day. His opening statement lasted for four hours. It included his life story, as well as his vision for Germany's future. He criticized minorities and disparaged communists as not even human. The co-defendants followed his lead, with Ernst Rahm telling the court, I still cannot comprehend that I should have to defend myself for a deed that seemed so natural to me. Hitler's closing statement would prove to be prophetic. He said that he was born for politics and just as a bird must sing because he is a bird, he had to engage in a political life. He then predicted that the hour would come when the masses who stand in the streets under our swastika flag will unite with those who fired at us on November 8. He finished with the statement that the army we have formed is growing from day to day. Although the crime of rebellion carried a maximum life sentence, Adolf was given the minimum, a mere five years. He would go on to only serve one of those. General Ludendorff, incredibly, was acquitted of all charges, despite being the official leader of the event. The deferential treatment continued while Adolf was in prison. Landsberg Prison was known as an extremely easy prison designed for criminals who were misguided rather than violent. Adolf was served breakfast daily on a table with a white tablecloth. His fellow prisoners ensured his privacy each day while he sipped his coffee along with toast and marmalade jelly. He spent time in his cell painting and designing stage sets for Wagner operas. Besides elevating him to a national figure, Hitler's time in prison was extremely influential to his rise, because it afforded him time to work on his autobiography slash political manifesto, Mein Kampf. Upon release, Adolf would acknowledge the importance of this, claiming to be the only one at the prison not weeping upon his release, as the prison stay had given him a frenzy of liberty and that without it, Mein Kampf would not have been written. Twelve million copies were sold between the summer of 1925 and his death in 1945. It directly promotes rabid anti-Semitism, Hitler's racist worldview, and an aggressive foreign policy geared towards taking land from Eastern European neighbors. In democracies, it is common for political candidates to write a memoir that confesses to any prior sins they have committed. The reasoning goes that it's better for the politician to point out the misdeeds than have it revealed by their opponent. Examples of this abound through the US political landscape. Barack Obama admitted to using cocaine as a teenager in an attempt to deal with struggles related to his racial identity. Al Gore, Newt Gingrich, and John Kerry all were the first to publicly acknowledge their drug use in college. Still, Mein Kampf is beyond shocking. In a propaganda piece littered with lies, he directly tells his supporters who he is and what he would do as their leader. He even explains to his readers the concept of the big lie, which was a lie so preposterous, such as something like a secret Jewish World Council deciding to stab Germany in the back, that people will believe it because of the fact that it is so crazy that there's no way someone would make it up. Here is Adolf's description of the big lie, quote, It would never come into their heads to fabricate colossal untruths, and they would not believe others could have the imprudence to distort the truth so infamously. Even though the facts which prove this to be so may be brought clearly to their minds, they will still doubt and waver and will continue to think there may be some other explanation for the grossly imprudent lie always leaves traces behind it, even after it's been nailed down, a fact which is known to all expert liars in this world and to all who conspire together in the art of lying. This is the equivalent of a magician telling his audience exactly how they plan to do the trick, and then the crowd still acting in disbelief after the trick is finished. America's official government psychological profile of Hitler speaks to this, stating that, his primary rules were, never allow the public to cool off, never admit a fault or wrong, never concede that there may be some good in your enemy, never leave room for alternatives, never accept blame, concentrate on one enemy at a time, and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one, and if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. Even more predictive, Adolf writes in Mein Kampf that, quote, Germany will either be a world power or will not be at all. Released after serving only eight months of his five-year sentence, Adolf rebuilt the Nazi party and the SA. This time he vowed to win elections through political means. The next three years would go on to become known as the quiet years, during which he built up the party's apparatus. At this point, it still only had 17,000 members. Among them were Joseph Goebbels, a brilliant propagandist with a PhD in literature. Goebbels was dispatched to grow the party in Berlin. During national elections, the party fared poorly, but Goebbels managed to win a seat in the Reichstag and began to poison the institution from the inside. Adolf, now 39 years old, remained in Bavaria in a new house with his 20-year-old niece. By all reports, They had a fully sexual relationship, and Hitler fawned over her, regularly taking her shopping to cafes, concerts, and to party meetings. Although clearly deranged and disgusting, such a relationship was not unheard of in Germany, as she was the daughter to his half-sister, and therefore not a full-blooded relative. In a few years, the young lady would go on to commit suicide, The circumstances of her death remain a great mystery. It occurred in the apartment they shared, and it came via Adolf's gun. The party went into immediate damage control, as Adolf was on the cusp of launching his first run for president. They initially pushed the story that she was nervous about an upcoming music recital. They attempted to dispose of her body with great haste after they bribed a party-approved local minister of justice to squash an investigation into her death. Still, the newspapers caught wind of the scandal, and the morning after ran the headline, A Mysterious Affair, Hitler's Niece Commits Suicide. Amid the rising speculation, the girl's body and story were both given a deeper look. Facial damage and other wounds on her body suggest a violent struggle beyond her single gunshot wound. Additionally, information regarding a disagreement between Hitler and his niece emerged. Evidently, she had intended to move to Vienna in order to marry another man. The investigation brought forth Adolf's depression, which always lurked in the shadows near the surface. Rudolf Hess was forced to leap and grab a pistol out of Hitler's hand before he could put it to his head. The event brought even more attention to the strange love life of Adolf Hitler. The magazine Die Fanfare ran an article headlined, Hitler's Lover Commits Suicide, Bachelors and Homosexuals as Leaders of the Party. There were even attempts to link another female suicide attempt in 1928, which had followed a romantic encounter with the future leader of Germany. Historian Dr. Sibahan Pat McClarkey is one of those in search of an explanation for Hitler's behavior. Dr. McClarkey is convinced that the answer lies within the oddities of his sex life. And when I say that she's obsessed, I mean it. She's the author of the book... The peculiar sex life of Adolf Hitler. After two exhaustive years of research and nearly 500 pages of proof, the doctor claims that Adolf was predominantly homosexual, particularly during his years living in homeless shelters for men. The male partners continued throughout his service in World War I. Additionally, A former Nazi member revealed that Adolf's personal bodyguards and chauffeurs were all exclusively homosexual. According to Mokasi, it was a political choice to turn straight and begin relationships with females, such as the one with his niece. Eight of the women whom he had sexual contact with attempted suicide, with six of them succeeding in ending their life. This includes 16-year-old Maria Reiter, who claimed after just one night that he had sexual tastes that were far too extreme for her. Actress Renate Mohler threw herself from a balcony after Hitler had ordered the Gestapo to follow her. She claimed that Hitler liked to be beaten in the bedroom. The most famous of all of Hitler's lovers, however, was Eva Braun. She married Hitler just days before they both died in his bunker. She told confidants that she regretted not leaving him ten years earlier. In addition to him being unfaithful to her, she attempted to convince his personal doctor to prescribe libido injections to the Fuhrer. While it is an interesting distraction from the man that ordered the death of six million of our Jewish brothers and sisters, Hitler's sexual perversions likely don't explain anything about the man himself, but it may explain Hitler's inclusion of gay men and women into the roles of those that would die in the Holocaust. There's a long history in American politics of some of the most vehemently homophobic politicians who have eventually been outed as being closeted the entire time they crusaded against the lgbtia communities. The so-called quiet years of Adolf Hitler ended in the 1930s. The fact that the quiet period ended at that moment was not coincidental. The Nazis continued to remain a small but growing party. For the larger masses to accept his twisted worldview, they would first have to reject the status quo in its totality. In 1929, the status quo, buoyed by the American-led Dawes plan, was improving the lives of ordinary Germans. The American economic takeover was a massive success, and one can imagine an alternative reality where Germany would have been stabilized for good. This would have significantly reduced poverty, one of the single largest factors in the rise of Hitler, and in the fall of the Weimar regime. Unfortunately, this proves to be nothing more than pleasant fantasy. On October 24, 1929, the U.S. stock market crashed. For good. The onset of the Great Depression forced the U.S. to turn its economic aid inward. Germany was once again left to its own devices. Historians Felix Gilbert and David Clay Large explains how the removal of Germany's safety net resulted in the rise of Hitler in their text The End of the European Era, 1890s to the present. They state that, quote, The economic crisis destroyed all expectations and hopes. The pre-war world now appeared irretrievably lost, and many were convinced that the new course of events was leading downhill and would end in a holocaust more dangerous and devastating for the continuity of European life than the First World War had been. Thus, the decade of the 1930s was a period full of anxiety and insecurity." Desperate times have been proven to substantially increase the number of individuals embracing those who promise to have all of the answers, even if those promises amount to big lies. Extremism always arises during times of economic recession. The German people had grown tired of the promises of the Weimar government. They had given this government a full decade to prove that it could bring positive change into their lives. After all this time, there was only one conclusion in the collective minds of the German people. Democracy didn't work. The 1930s saw Heinrich Brüning take over as Chancellor. Brüning recognized that the people's frustration would likely bring political change to Germany. That appeared inevitable. Incorrectly, he believed that that change would be the return of the Kaiser. What followed is criminal deceit in the guise of politics. Like most countries, Germany's economy was shattered into a million pieces during the 1930s. The new chancellor responded to rising unemployment by cutting safety net programs. Knowing that the Reichstag wouldn't accept the measures, he proceeded to dissolve it, called for new snap parliamentary elections. It was during this 1930 snap election that the Nazi party unexpectedly jumped from 15 to 107 seats. The massive bounce in their political fortune made everyone finally pay attention to Hitler's upstart party. Just like politicians today, the threat to their jobs resulted in their changed behavior in a desperate attempt to cling to power. Gilbert and Large pointedly state that from this time until January 30, 1933, when their leader Adolf Hitler became chancellor, German politics was dominated by one issue, whether or not the Nazis would come to power. Hitler was prepared for the political fight. He had hired 1,000 professionally trained speakers to spread his message to every town in Germany, no matter its size. Brüning remained in power for two years, both of which were spent ruling by decree as an authoritarian. The Reichstag could have stopped him, but they refrained from coalescing around a majority as they believed that deposing Brüning would result in Hitler taking his place. They chose a course designed to maintain the lesser of two evils. Rising in power but still lacking a majority within this democratic system Hitler began to set his sight on an even higher office, that of president. He ran in 1932 against Paul von Hindenburg, a World War I hero that was revered across Germany for his work opposing Russia's Red Army. Hindenburg had first achieved the presidency in 1925. Although he managed to defeat Adolf Hitler by a 55-37% vote in the runoff election, The margin was closer than the 84-year-old desired, and it represented a decline in the overall vote share from his first term. Of the votes that he had lost between the elections of 1925 and 1932, the vast majority had ended up going to Adolf Hitler. The election results lurched Hindenburg into action. First, he removed the unpopular Bruning and began to mobilize the government in order to actually help the German people. His first attempt for a replacement chancellor was Franz von Papen. He lasted for only five months before losing a vote of confidence in the Reichstag 53 to 513. Kurt von Schickler was next in line, and he only lasted a month. In each case, political fights picked with Adolf Hitler resulted in their failure and removal. At the beginning of 1933, President Hindenburg embarked on a clever, but dangerous, plan. Ever since his trial, Adolf Hitler had made a name for himself as an outsider attacking the system. Hindenburg's plan was to flip him into the position of an insider. He would make Hitler the next chancellor. If the Nazi failed, as the previous two chancellors had, Adolf's political star would finally begin to fade. There were safeguards put in place for this dangerous gambit. Hitler would only be allowed to appoint Nazi members to minor cabinet positions. This was done under the false belief that the other members of the government would be able to control the new chancellor. The illusion of control was lost from the get-go. Almost immediately after he was installed, Adolf called for snap elections to commence in March. Before the elections arrived, the infamous Reichstag fire changed the course of human history. The Smithsonian Magazine calls the Reichstag fire the canary in the political coal mine, pointing out that Hitler used it as a flashpoint to play upon public fears in order to consolidate his power and set the stage for the rise of Nazi Germany. Before the fire, the Nazi party held 33% of the congressional seats in the Reichstag. The other parties were effectively and consistently working together to frustrate Chancellor Hitler's agenda. This didn't prevent him from trying to take over. The Nazis were actively infiltrating the rank and file of police throughout Germany, and Hitler was using his powers as chancellor to enroll 50,000 SA stormtroopers as new members of the Auxiliary Police. If a national emergency ever occurred, Hitler would be the one that would control the response. Around 9 p.m. on the night of February 27th, six days before the elections were to be held, the Reichstag was lit on fire. It took an hour to put the flames out, and the damage to the building was calculated at more than a million dollars. A Dutch communist construction worker, named Marinus van der Lube was arrested and subsequently confessed, stating that, quote, I myself am a leftist and was a member of the communist party until 1929. I had heard that a communist demonstration was disbanded by the leaders on the approach of the police. In my opinion, something absolutely had to be done in protest against the system. Since the workers would do nothing, I had to do something myself. I considered arson a suitable method. I did not wish to harm private people, but something belonging to the system itself. I decided on the Reichstock. As to the question of whether I acted alone, I declare emphatically that this was the case." End quote. But the experts weren't so sure. A trial commenced despite the confession, and during it, serious doubt was put forth about whether or not van der Lubbe was capable of setting the stone building on fire. While the other defendants that were rounded up, mostly communist foreigners, were acquitted, the confession was enough to ensure that the Dutchman was beheaded. Doubt over his guilt has been a consistency among the German court. In 1967, 30 years after his death, a Berlin court changed his sentence posthumously from death to 8 years imprisonment. In 1980, the court then lifted the sentence completely, but was reversed by a higher institution. Finally, in 1998, the political body of the Reichstag itself issued a pardon, and in 2008 it was finally granted. While we are not sure exactly what happened on the night of February 27th, there is no mistaking the immediate effects of the event. In fact, it is immaterial whether or not Hitler planned the attack as a stroke of political genius, or if he was just smart enough to cash in on a winning lottery ticket that he picked up off the street. Adolf arrived on the scene ready to go, telling onlookers that, quote, this is a God-given signal. If this fire, as I believe, is the work of the communists, then we must crush out this murderous pest with an iron fist. Within the first few hours of February 28th, President von Hindenburg invoked constitutional powers to arrest and imprison anyone suspected of having communist ties. The SA were put in charge of the roundup, arresting, imprisoning, and torturing roughly 4,000 individuals. The March 5th elections occurred as scheduled and despite the blame falling squarely at the feet of the communists, as well as the fact that Nazi stormtroopers acted with extreme violence in an attempt to intimidate voters, the German people elected 81 communist party members to the institution that was the Reichstag, a number that corresponded with 17% of Congress's total. Due to their party affiliation, however, These communists were never allowed to be seated. The Nazi party, on the other hand, won 288 seats, 168 more than the next largest party. This represented a gain of 92 seats for the party. With that said, however, they only controlled 43% of the Reichstag, They would have to find another party to enter into a coalition government for them to wield majority power. At least they would have had to if the communists had been allowed to be seated. The results of the election stood. The communist party wasn't removed and therefore weren't replaced. They just wanted to be allowed to participate in any vote while the investigation occurred. 43% out of 100 won't win you any votes, but 12% of the Reichstag no longer existed. That meant that 43% of the vote represented by the Nazi party only needed one or two individual defections from any other party to successfully pass their agenda. The first item on that agenda was the Enabling Act. The Enabling Act essentially dissolved and removed all powers of the Reichstag. Hitler took a couple of steps to ensure this passage. First, they attempted to buy the votes of the other parties. The center party provides an excellent example here. As the third largest party, they represented a group that could counter-cajole the other parties. Instead of opposing evil, however, they folded and voted unanimously for the Enabling Act after Hitler promised to protect the interests of German Catholics, and vowed that he would repeal the restrictive Reichstag Fire Decree, which limited civil liberties for all. Unsure if his bribes were enough, armed SA stormtroopers swarmed all over the building as a show of force during the vote. Outside the chambers, they chanted, Full Powers, or Else! We Want the Bill, or Fire and Murder. At the final tally, only the Social Democrats defiantly stood against the bill, and it passed 441 to 84. With the passage of the Enabling Act, Adolf Hitler now had the framework for a legal dictatorship. The final thorn in his side died on August 2, 1934 from lung cancer. Paul von Hindenburg attempted to safeguard his legacy in a too little too late last-ditch effort. He had signed a decree that forbade anyone, including Hitler, from altering the powers of the presidency. Within two hours of Hindenburg's death, the newly proclaimed Führ merged his office of the chancellor with that of the presidency, leaving himself and him alone in charge of Germany.